0: might be like Dr. Frankenstein in a way, because if you look at that book, you know, Mary Shelley's book, there's some parallels there, because, you know, you have these power-mad people who create a monster, the monster gets away from them and shows them up for who they are, and then they want to go after and kill the monster.
1: It's time for us to stand together as a nation, as one. We need to stand with Flint. We need to stand with Standing Rock. We need to stand with Alabama. We need to stand up as Americans and tell them that our water, our future, and our children are no longer for sale.
2: Welcome to On the Ground, ground OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance and alternative news from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Reporting from the belly of the beast, as we say, where there is a bunch of crass thievery and underhanded betrayal of the American people going on, including by the so-called Beltway corporate media. Later in the show, this year's final segment of The F Word, our monthly discussion of fascism, fascist directions and trends, with Georgetown Media Studies Professor Christopher Chambers. We'll also hear voices from a protest this week against a controversial pipeline project, this one directly impacting the nation's capital region. All that is coming up later in the show, but first, our headlines. This week, the GOP tax plan, also known as the tax scam and tax heist, the largest transfer of wealth to the 1% in the nation's history, passed both houses of Congress, Senator Bernie Sanders told CNN that the massive tax benefits to the rich and corporations are just the first stage in a plan by House Speaker Paul Ryan for eventual cuts to Social Security for seniors and for health care.
3: What he is saying is they're going to come back very shortly with entitlement reform. Please America, understand what he means by entitlement reform. Those are cuts to Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. Remember, during the campaign, candidate Donald Trump said, oh, if I'm elected president, there'll be no cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. That is exactly what Ryan has in mind. And I challenge the president, maybe for once in his life, keep the promises that you made. Tell Ryan and Mitch McConnell that you will veto any legislation that cuts Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. It is obscene to give tax breaks to billionaires and then cut these programs that are life and death.
2: Also, Congress just passed a stopgap spending bill that will keep the federal government operating through January 19th. The spending measure includes funding for the neglected children's health care program, or CHIP, through March, but does not include funding set aside for disaster aid or for a renewal of the DREAM Act, which has been lobbied for on behalf of 800,000 young immigrants brought to the United States as children who are losing the protections granted to them under the Obama administration. Hundreds of DREAMers and their supporters and allies descended on Capitol Hill on December 21st in the latest round of protests to prevent the ongoing deportation of DACA recipients. Members of the group United We Dream held a sit in at the office of Senate Leader Mitch McConnell.
4: We're going to wait for Senator Mitch McConnell, the senator from Kentucky, who has approximately 3,100 people in his state who are DACA recipients, of which 122 each and every day become priorities for deportation. From those 122 people, five people an hour lose their status. So what we're going to do is here, we're going to tell our stories. We're going to talk about our experiences because we are here as representatives of the
5: constituents of the state of Kentucky.
2: Now, dreamers will need to wait until next year for Congress to take up the DREAM Act. In the meantime, advocates say that hundreds will face deportation. And speaking of loss of place, many federal rules impacting the public are getting very little attention such as patients using medical marijuana being evicted from public housing. Chantel James has more.
6: As concerns grow that the war on drugs harms more people than it helps, local activists are taking to the streets to advocate for victims of the federal criminalization of marijuana, a substance which should ostensibly be decriminalized in the District of Columbia by our local laws. Recently, protesters handed out free cannabis to passersby, and spoke out against the evictions of medical marijuana users in public housing under Secretary Ben Carson's policies. Residents who depend on cannabis medically, among them elders and disabled people with nowhere to go once their government housing is taken from them, gave testimony on the ways they've been negatively impacted by the policy. Nicholas Schiller of DCMJ spoke with us at the protest his organization led in front of the Department of Housing and Urban Development downtown near L'Enfant Plaza.
7: We had one person who came through to one of our meetings who expressed that their landlord um, has used their medical cannabis against them because there was mold in her house, and she wanted to report that there was mold, and the landlord said, well, if if you report this mold, we're going to report you for using cannabis. And so we're here at HUD because we've had multiple people come to us over the last few years saying that they would like some change to happen at HUD, and currently the policy is that if someone um, gets in trouble with the law for possession or use of cannabis, even not on the HUD property, they can still be evicted. So imagine a grandma who has her grandchildren living in the house, and the grandchild gets uh, arrested for uh, possession of cannabis. She, the grandma, can lose. She can be evicted.
6: And it looks like you're also building some awareness of the issue in the community.
7: Yes, yeah, so there hasn't been any other groups that have um, approached this, and now that the most populous state in the United States. California has legalized cannabis. This is going to be an issue that's going to be taken on in other states, not just the District of Columbia. We just have to be close to the proximity of power here to be able to highlight this issue.
6: From Southwest D.C., this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. Another federal
2: policy that continues to do more harm than good is one that encourages fracking, hydraulic fracturing for natural gas, which is then piped across our communities, often for export overseas. On Tuesday, a rally was held to oppose a proposed Potomac pipeline, which would cross the Potomac River and the historic C&O Canal, potentially endangering the drinking water for 6 million people, including residents of the District of Columbia. TransCanada, the same company connected to the controversial Keystone XL pipeline, is behind the project. Mike Tidwell, director of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, told the crowd in Hancock, Maryland, on Tuesday that Maryland officials have not provided proof that this pipeline would not impact precious water resources.
4: We've been asking the Maryland Department of the Environment, the folks we're all about to go talk to in a second, we've been asking them literally for months to commit to a transparent public process to review the impacts that this radical pipeline for radical gas could have on water quality. And they will not commit to it.
2: We'll hear more voices from that rally in Hanover, Maryland, later in the show. Now I'm going to turn to international news with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Gerald, the ANC elections occurred this week, and what's the result, and what can you tell us about them?
3: Well, the result is is that the new leader of the African National Congress, and the odds-on favorite to become president of South Africa in 2019, if not before, is the multimillionaire, if not billionaire businessman, Cyril Ramaphosa, you may recall was a leader of the Mine Workers Union during the era of apartheid and was also the chief negotiator in the transition period from apartheid to what we have today. It's interesting to note that his chief opponent was the former spouse of current President Jacob Zuma. I'm speaking of Nkazana Dalamini Zuma and she actually had a more left-wing platform than Mr. Ramaposa. that is to say targeting what was termed white monopoly capitalism uh, calling for redistribution of the wealth but because she was so closely tied to her former spouse for better or for worse I don't think that many of the delegates actually believed what she was proclaiming in any case I think it's also fair to say that the South African Communist Party suffered a setback in terms of its representation on the top leadership body of the ANC. You know that the South African Communist Party is in a long-term alliance with the ANC and the Congress of South African Trade Unions. The SACP's representation uh, on the top leadership body was reduced, and I think that's probably a reaction to the fact That the Communist Party played a leading role in dislodging former President Thabo Mbeki in an internal palace coup almost a decade ago on the grounds that he was supposedly pursuing spurious claims of corruption against his then deputy Jacob Zuma. But now the Communist Party has turned around and has become the major force clamoring for the ouster of Jacob Zuma on precisely those charges of corruption. In any case, I think we should also put South Africa in a global context. That is to say that given the experience in neighboring Zimbabwe where claims of land reform and the attempt to bring about land reform and taking land from the European minority and redistributing it widely to Africans led to sanctions against the regime and an ultimate coup that was not a coup against long-term leader Robert Mugabe just weeks ago. And that reflects the fact that in the current political economy, the North Atlantic countries thus far uh, continue to dominate even in South Africa. And that will probably change, I would imagine, in the next few decades with the rise of China in particular, but it has not changed as of December 2017.
2: Well, how do you see this election impacting the lives of everyday South Africans and the fact that so many continue to suffer from lack of speedy reforms and the types of reforms that they hope would end the impact of
3: decades of apartheid? Well, I think it's fair to say that there have been significant reforms in South Africa since democratic elections in 1994. Water has come to villages and communities that theretofore did not have water. It's also fair to say that there has been an attempt to reverse the compulsory ignorance policy of the apartheid regime, where the African majority was kept away from education. There has been the building of schools, for example, the infusion of African teenagers and young adults into institutions of higher education, But given the fact that the settlement in 1994 was not the result of the military defeat of the apartheid regime, but as a result of a negotiated settlement, and that was taking place against the backdrop of the collapse of the socialist camp, which tied the hands of the ANC negotiators, not to mention the fact that the heavy lifting on the battlefield was done by the Cuban military which defeated the South African military on the battlefields of Southern Angola and Northern Namibia, the correlation of forces were not necessarily positive going into these elections in 1994 and they remain not necessarily positive today. Now one straw in the wind that may not be reassuring to your audience is that the ANC as in the last 24 to 48 hours has made soundings about moving towards land reform now that of course raises the specter of what happened to Zimbabwe but in any case what happened in response was that the new leaders Cyril Ramaphosa interestingly enough invoked the Freedom Charter that is to say the operative document of the African National Congress enacted some decades ago and mr. Ramaphosa said South Africa belongs to all those who reside in it black and white and that was interpreted as being a signal not to move aggressively against the European minority that continues to overwhelmingly dominate the land. Uh, That was not a reassuring signal, and I trust and I hope that Mr. Ramaphosa will seek to clarify what he actually meant.
2: Also this week, the international community strongly rebuked Trump's decision and announcement about moving the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which has long been held as a capital of a future Palestinian state. It's been a central part of any kind of negotiations for peace between the Palestinians and and Israel.
3: Well, the Security Council resolution on Jerusalem was vetoed by Ambassador Haley. But as you know, in the General Assembly, which is not subject to a United States veto, There was an overwhelming majority rebuking Mr. Trump and his attempt to say that Jerusalem is the eternal capital of Israel. This came in the wake of threats by Mr. Trump to cut back on foreign aid to those countries who did not vote the way he thinks they should have voted. There are a couple of takeaways that I glean from these recent events. One is the increasingly militant role of Turkey, whose relationship with the United States is deteriorating rapidly. Turkey was a major force in moving this General Assembly resolution, along with Egypt too, by the way, which has moved ever closer to Moscow, to the consternation of Washington. And secondly, this overwhelming vote against U.S. imperialism in the General Assembly also reflects something we've been talking about on the ground for some months now, which is this gathering broad front against U.S. imperialism, which I dare say took momentum in the wake of this rebuke of Mr. Trump on Jerusalem.
2: Well, we will definitely keep watching these issues and uh, talk to you one more time this year, before the end of this year, to get your thoughts on just the year in general. So I look forward to talking to you again next week. I've been speaking with Gerald Horn, professor, author, activist, and frequent contributor to On the Ground. Thank you, Gerald.
3: Thank you.
5: Hard times, tales from the dark side, evidence of the settlements on my hard drive. Man, I swear my heart died at the end of that car ride. When I saw that checkpoint, welcome to apartheid. Soldiers wear military green at the checkpoint. Automatic guns that's machine at the checkpoint. Tables not M16s at the checkpoint. Fingers on the trigger, you get leaned at the checkpoint. Little children, grown adults and teens at the checkpoint. All your papers better be clean at the checkpoint. Gotta put your finger on the screen at the checkpoint and pray that red light turns at the checkpoint, and Martin Luther King had a dream when the checkpoint he winked with loud screams from the scenes. At the checkpoint is Malcolm X, by any means. At the checkpoint, imagine if your daily routine was the checkpoint. And Martin Luther King had a dream when the checkpoint he winked with loud screams from the scenes. At the checkpoint is Malcolm X, by any means. At the checkpoint, imagine if your daily routine was the checkpoint. Separation walls that surround and the checkpoint on top is barbed wire like a crown on the checkpoint. You better have your permits if you found that the Checkpoint coming on the tower aiming down at the checkpoint I is to keep you in fear at the checkpoint Enter through the cage in the rear of the checkpoint Feels like prison on a tear at the checkpoint I'd rather be anywhere but here at this checkpoint Nelson Mandela wasn't blind to the checkpoint He stood for free Palestine at a checkpoint Support BDS don't give a dime to the checkpoint This is international crime at the checkpoint Arabs get treated like dogs at the checkpoint Cause discrimination is the law at the checkpoint Criminal last without a cause at the checkpoint I'm just telling you what I saw at the
8: checkpoint And now it's my great honor to welcome Paula Jean Swearingen She is a native of Mullins, West Virginia Coming from several generations of a coal mining family America was built by West Virginia coal But like so many other Appalachian families Paula's family also paid a steep price for coal She lost her grandfather to black lung Her uncles have since been diagnosed with the disease as well The beautiful streams and rivers she grew up on have become toxic. In fact, she always thought she was a redhead because the water from her shower stained her brown hair. In the last 10 years, she has been a strong voice for social, economic, and environmental justice work, advocating for clean water, healthy communities, and a more stable and diverse economy for her home state. And now we are pleased to have her lend her voice to Maryland and the Eastern Panhandle of West Virginia to join in our efforts to stop the Potomac Pipeline and stand in solidarity with the communities here. Please give a warm hand to Paula Jean. Everybody.
1: Now this lady's right, and you wonder why we come all the way from the coal fields of West Virginia to stand out here in Maryland and raise a little hell about the pipeline. And I'll tell you why. I buried most of my family, and she didn't mention that I buried my daddy, the cancer, 54 years old. And you look at West Virginia right now—one of the biggest polluting coal barons in West Virginia. Was my Democratic governor. Now is my Republican governor, and his Pensilica does, three miles uh, from my house and my children's lungs. We have suffered in the coal fields. We have laid the platform for cultural genocide. But they, our incumbents, and these corporate polluters, don't know one thing. This is our revolution. We are fighting back. We have been coming out of the belly of the beast in the coal fields for decades, and just like our water. Our struggles flow across our borders, but so does our unity, so does our human compassion, and so does a mother's will to fight for her children. So does a father's will and every American to fight for their community. You guys are going to go down the same path. If you think they're going to protect your water, they're not. It's time for us to stand together as a nation, as one. We need to stand with Flint. We need to stand with Standing Rock, we need to stand with Alabama, we need to stand up as Americans and tell them that our water, our future, and our children are no longer for sale. So I hope one thing when we leave here today as we do unite. We unite our resources, we unite our talents. And we go in here and tell these people, you know every time a hearing is coming in our community, we know something bad is coming. So yeah. you go in there and you tell them no. Hell no. You don't want the pipelines, you don't want them out the jobs outsourced like it's been in West Virginia, we're and we're tending wheeling. Those jobs aren't there. They, they, tra- they do not bring any type of economic development. And we want prosperity, and we want a future for our children. Our children have to contend with the mess that we make. So not only no, hell no, go home and stay
8: away. Thank you Paula Jean. Next we have one of the people that's been on the front lines of this front, her name is Patricia Keysacker. She grew up on a farm in Berkeley Springs and she and her husband were married in 1969 and she's been farming, the family has been farming that land for seven generations. And on December 22nd, three days before Christmas, They will be hauled into court once again to fight for their land and to preserve it from being trashed by a pipeline. So we'd like to give Patricia a warm welcome and have her say a few words. She's been a great leader and spokesperson for this fight.
9: Oh. Don't you worry. I know how to handle them, too. Oh. Back in 2016, Mountaineer Gas appeared. The lead agents came saying we want the, uh, the land, and here is a contract, certain amount of money, and it is all deal- done deal. We don't want the money, and you are one of our farm lands that didn't succeed, so, so they come along with other. Um, but they can't get the one agent to take you on, and they send somebody else to take you on. They are uh, always pressing you about doing the land, taking what they want, and all, and then they tell everybody, well, if you don't go along with it, we with them the domain. They did. They took this to court before the Fourth of July, and they took our, our land away from us, and all. We weren't allowed to stop them at all. Uh, i have asked them, you have the, the right from the court to, to take the land but you don't have the right to dictate to us and that's what they're doing they uh, are going 75 feet across our property for almost a mile uh, they hold 50 feet from that time on uh, the destruction they're going to cause a lot of this is farmed wide open fields that's what they want they want to get in our biggest fields because they can lay a mile of pipe in a day in an open field and uh, they have um, keeping to 50 feet which we will pay property tax on you know, forever. Uh, That's and then we're supposed to be responsible for anything that happens. Their fault, our fault. How would you ever pay what it's gonna cost if one of these things explodes? You know. It's just it's ridiculous that they have just you know, they we always thought we were safe, but unfortunately everything in the domain was it was based on all's canal. Well now they're started with a transmission line. Before we went to the the commissioners in Berkeley Springs, they come out with it in the paper. There's going to be a distribution line. Okay, well, you all haven't made it over there yet, so now we're going to be a storage line. Now, it's 400 pound pressure per square inch. They can jack that pressure up to 475 underground and all. This is our heritage for our children, grandchildren, and have great-grandchildren. And it's, it's all about the money according to them and all. If you want to know how they rip people off, go to your courthouse. Know the people that's in next to you or whatever. It's a matter of public record once they take your land or do the, bit, the their little deal. And the peop- money that they gave people was piddling and all. They started out with 26000 for us. The day we went to court, they brought their check of 59000 something. We told it was blood money. We don't want it and all. It's not about, it's not about the money. Uh, Yeah, we could use it. We had a barn torched and all, and we've had a lot of bad things with us that we could use the money. But that's not what the land is for. We have farmed it for 80-plus years. My husband has cleared a lot of that land. He's put blood, sweat, and tears in that property. Because when you ever clean land and you know what cigar bushes are, let me tell you, you got blood and you got tears. uh, we need to change the internet domain law. It's, to, it's not for us. It's for the government and the big, big companies to take it away.
5: Okay.
9: They're making an example out of us. Like I said, they took us to court before July. Now they're taking us on Friday before Christmas. I guess that's their—they get their kicks out of aggravating us because we're trying to—we're fighting them and not just falling over and saying take it all, which what they want to do.
8: All. But thank you, all. I appreciate everything thank you're thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Patricia. Next, I'd like to introduce Mike Tidwell. He's, he's my great boss and also the founder and director of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network.
4: Well, thanks for coming out. It's great again. I think the last time I saw a lot of y'all was holding uh, hands across the Shepherdstown Bridge. Amazing! Listen, we're here about fracking. I mean, basically, that's what we're talking about. Fracking is a radical process, it's a radical technology to force gas up from the ground uh, to cause underground earthquakes to basically. Uh, explode the mountains on the inside to get the gas to come up. It's so radical that our state is banned it. Of my state of Maryland. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's so radical that even our Republican governor of Maryland agrees it's radical. Yeah. And yet, Larry Hogan is ready to grant a permit to let a radical pipeline for radical gas pass through the state of Maryland. Yeah. Yeah. That's what really concerns me is because we've been asking the Maryland Department of the Environment, the folks we're all about to go talk to in a second, we've been asking them literally for months to commit to a transparent public process to review the impacts that this radical pipeline for radical gas could have on water quality. Yes. And they will not commit to it. I have a text from the Secretary of the Maryland Department of the Environment tonight saying, no, we're still considering it. Now, this is a pipeline 75 feet wide right-of-way. They're going to trench on the ground. They're going to go through karst, Swiss cheese-type caves that are connected to the Potomac River, which is the drinking water of 6 million people, and they're not sure if they want to do a transparent certification process on water. They're still unsure about that. Now, here's another thing. I don't know if the mayor of Boomsboro... And the county commissioners in Washington County very frequently get on the same page with the council members of the District of Columbia, but all those people I just mentioned have sent letters to Larry Hogan saying, we're concerned about this radical pipeline. So you've got the D.C. Council, the Williamsboro Mayor, the Washington County Commissioners all agreeing that we need a transparent public process for what's called a 401 certification. This is what we all need to be talking about over and over again tonight and every night until we get it. And that is a public, transparent hearing on the impact of this pipeline on water quality. Until we get it, this is a sham. This is as big a sham as fracking. This is an impact on us as big as fracking because this will not be the last pipeline. There will be more. This pipeline alone would impact 19 Maryland streams and 10 wetlands. It would impact 100 wetlands and streams in West Virginia. And so we're talking about a big impact. And unless and until we have a full public hearing, we're not asking for a lot, Governor. We're asking for light. We're asking for, here we are in the darkness tonight. We are surrounded by darkness on this pipeline. All the facts are not on the table. We don't know what this drilling is going to do. Our drinking water for potentially 6 million people, and we need to bring light to this process. So let's fight together. Let's go. Let's win. Thank you.
2: If you're just tuning in, you just heard voices from a press conference and rally in opposition to a proposed Potomac pipeline that would carry fracked natural gas crossing the Potomac River and the historic CNO Canal and potentially endanger drinking water for 6 million people. The rally was held Tuesday, December 19th in Hancock, Maryland, about 30 miles north of D.C. This is On the Ground, ground onthegroundshow.org. Voices of resistance from the nation's capital, I'm Esther Averam. When we come back, truth, lies, and videotape in corporate media. This month's episode of The F-Word, stay with us. Moving into our final segment for 2017 of The F Word, our monthly exploration of fascism, what the revolutionary George Jackson defined as the complete control of the state by monopoly capital. Certainly, as we see this year, the Trump cabinet dominated by millionaires and billionaires who are either dismantling their public agencies or turning over the public treasure, trust, and property to private corporations. You could say that we have been doing segments on The F Word all year. But for this month, we're going to turn our attention to the news and information industry and the increased control of corporations in an already corporatized industry. Joining me on the line is author and educator Christopher Chambers, professor of media studies at Georgetown University, and a frequent commentator on mass communications and culture. Welcome to On the Ground, Professor Chambers.
0: It's great to be here.
2: Well, it's difficult to know where to start. But I want to keep referring back to the corporate role in all of this. I'm hearing a lot of criticism on the left about the uh, mainstream media's constant obsession about Russia, as opposed to covering so many of the other issues that are really impacting Americans, the environment, this atrocious tax bill, attacks on our health, labor on so many fronts, and not to mention the bloated military budget. What do you think about that criticism?
0: Well, it's because of the corporate media business model. We have, we have issues, and that's not to say that Russiagate has come up out of thin air. I mean, there are issues there, and there are some problems there that need to be addressed, but does it need to take over the corp- with, with the corporate media's 24-hour news cycle? Here's the thing. It's very sexy for them. It's you know it, it's a good tale of good and evil for them. It gets eyeballs on their site. It gets eyeballs on their their legacy TV channels. It gets eyeballs on you know what could be the last gasp of, of print journalism too. And for print journalism, it also helps them harken back to their their golden age. Of investigative journalism, they like to, to say that. So, I mean, it fits their business model perfectly. Where, where on the other hand, where you have issues of the, in the environment and poisoning the environment, of native peoples getting pipelines shoved through them and that burst, that of this tax bill, which you know uh, is overwhelmingly unpopular, yet it still is is going forward because, you know, the mainstream media has not picked it apart to the, to the extent that it should have, those are issues that, for them at least, they claim are complicated and it's hard for them to cover. To you and I, that sounds stupid, but to them uh, and in their business model, it makes perfect sense. And so that is a lot of that going on. A lot of it is not ideological on any level. It is just it fits their business model.
2: It's funny that you mentioned the word complication. Uh, I think it was either last week or the week before we played a video from the U.S. campaign uh, for Palestinian rights, and it, the title of the video is actually Palestine One Hundred One. It's not that complicated. And as you see, just recently, you know, Trump making this really incendiary move to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem and declare that Israel's capital that. The coverage of that was so skewed many in many ways to not really give the history and I just bring that up because that that's an area where you see they're receiving very little coverage and from the perspective of Palestinian people and they say that that's too complicated
0: well yeah i mean it's it wasn't only skewed it was very superficial you know because you have a situation where even the details the the just the the factual details of what he said uh, this movement entail was not even explored. Like, how long would it take? What are the logistics? It's almost like he announced it. They gobbled it up. They shoved it down our throats. They skewed it uh, entirely towards, uh, you know, not just Israel, but the minority of people in Israel that are pushing this kind of activism against the, the Palestinians because there are, you know, big swaths of the Israeli population that, that don't want to have this militant stance that, that Netanyahu has, but nobody has explored that aspect of it. There's a possibility that this might not even physically happen, not to mention within the time frame that he says, but they didn't even go into that part. So, in addition to skewing against the Palestinian people, you also have a lack of. of of depth, of reporting as to what the actual details are. That, again, fits their corporate business model.
2: Speaking of the business model, when I hear the term fake news, when I hear all this discussion about collusion, Russian interference in the elections, I mean, I can't help but think back to all those months during the campaign when Trump was given... I think I don't know whether it was be millions or billions of dollars in free advertising
0: when <laughs> it was called unearned time. It, it, and, and if you look at the three legacy TV networks, uh, CNN. I'm not going to count Fox because that's that's a whole other, <laughs> a whole nother, uh, thing. But if you look at the three legacy broadcast networks plus CNN, it was it was about uh, the equivalent of about a billion dollars in unearned yes. time. And, you know, and so maybe they they might be like Dr. Frankenstein in a way. Because if you look at that book, you know, Mary Shelley's book, so there's some parallels there. Because, you know, you have these power mad people who create a monster. The monster gets away from them and shows them up for who they are. And then they want to go after and kill the monster. Hmm. So there is that kind of a, of a parallel Now I don't want to make too much of it you know I'm kind of saying it tongue in cheek but you know you do see those parallels and you know I don't ascribe any noble intentions to them for that because they were the ones that created the situation they were the ones that benefited from the situation the way they still do because people are watching and reading more than ever
2: the reason I bring that up is because of the Constant claim about interfering in the elections, you know? And I can't think of anything that was more interfering than this constant barrage of coverage of Trump and uncritical coverage. It's not as if they were analyzing what he was doing. And and you know, this is apropos because we've we're just past one year of his being elected. And not only just kind of broadcasting the speeches, you know, where he's talking about build the wall and and disparaging people of color and, and having uh, actual fistfights in the audience publicized and him having people thrown out. I'm still haunted by a picture of a, a young woman, a young black woman being pushed around in the crowd and she keeps her composure. And, but, you know, you have these these racists, like, you know, you know, pushing her, spitting at her and pushing her out. But this was all broadcast, you know, it's kind of like this election porn, <laughs> you call it election porn. And then sometimes they would even broadcast the empty podium while they were waiting on him to come as opposed to giving time to Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton, or whoever, <laughs> who might be running.
0: It was heaven sent for them in terms of ratings bait and you know, in a very interesting way, again I talk about le- levels of irony here, layers of irony. They are part of, of corporate entities that that have made money off of his pledge and his and, and the people he's put in the cabinet and the and the Congress that he's pulled with him to deregulate, to denigrate labor, to raise capital. They have benefited from that, so you're not going to see them go after him with the alacrity and with the the ethics that they should. I mean, you know, you, you, you actually do see an element of that even in the net neutrality battle that's going on right now.
2: Absolutely. Because, that's what I was going to get to next, you know, because <laughs> yeah. this is a really important issue.
0: Well, it, uh, it is. And, you know, and, and, again, when I said I don't want to ascribe virtuous motives to some people, but you do see you have the ironic situation where you have the tech giants who claim to be on the side of the little people of people of color of consumers, of small, innovative content creators who will be wiped out or ill-affected by net neutrality, whereas they are, you know, multi-trillion-dollar you know, trillion dollar companies. They are against it for their own selfish reasons. Likewise, there are people on the other side, like, you know, AT&T and Verizon, who are for destroying net neutrality for their own selfish reasons. So there is this intercorporate Fighting, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to be a tiny person when you see two giant dinosaurs or like in those Godzilla movies, fighting yeah. each other, and we're down at the bottom at their feet. And they don't really care who they crush, but they're trying to kill each other. So you do have that situation. I mean, it is kind of analogous in some respects to what's going on with corporate media and and how they... They've kind of created Trump. You
2: know, while you're talking about online issues, the other thing that's happened that really hasn't gotten a lot of exposure is uh, a change in the algorithms in Google and, and Facebook this year that has tremendously impacted progressive media. And which is kind of taking its last stand online, (laughs) you know, and so to destroy that, I mean, it's already been seriously destroyed. Uh, Websites like Alternet, I think Democracy Now, many websites have seen a dramatic decrease in their web traffic after Google and Facebook change their algorithms. A lot of people fear that this this net neutrality issue will be a further uh, have a further really negative impact on people's ability to get out a different type of content. What well, we consider real news, not fake news. Well, no, it, it
0: will, it'll affect alternate democracy. Now, people trying to get out true and pure, you know, progressive message just as it will affect the people who are trying to get out a pure and truer form of entertainment, you know, that isn't just at least common denominator entertainment. There And again, there is, an, is another um, irony where where Facebook and Google are trying to fight to keep net neutrality, yet their own practices are helping to kill off the very people that they claim are, they're allied with. You know, let's face it, we have a situation here where Google and Facebook want to live and die uh, by the algorithm when they need to basically own up to the fact that they are they are media outlets. And maybe at some point, you know, a lot of this is going to have to go back to this is dangerous, you know, in, in certain respects, because look at, look at what's happened to our corporate media. But there is an argument to be made that they need to, to lend less emphasis on these algorithms and more on hands-on human editors. Because, you know, it, it, these these things are not the neutral uh, digital creatures that we think they are. They have operated to empower negative um, um, fascist movements that, and create the bubbles that the people that feed those live under.
2: Well, you know, there have been a number of other things that have happened, too. I'm thinking recently, uh, RT being made to register as a foreign agent. And and then after that, soon after that, they were stripped of their press credentials, I think, to cover uh, the Capitol Hill and I think also the White House, right? So it had a consequence. It wasn't just this benign registration, which they were made to do. It wasn't that it wasn't an option. And then to have your media credentials stripped away, that seems to be a a definite suppression of an alternative view. And so what are your thoughts on that?
0: It was the classic Catch-22, which, you know, from the actual novel, you have to do something, but if you do it, then you're screwed. And I think that the move to compel them to to register uh, as a foreign agent, as a Foreign Agents Registration Act, was a form of censorship. The American arm of any foreign news organization does have certain First Amendment rights. It's not like 100%, as, say, the New York Times or CBS would, but it is there. And you have to have a rational reason, a very good rational reason to do what you're going to do to a foreign uh, news organization, otherwise, you know, you're violating the First Amendment. If it were an American organization, it would be an overwhelming reason, you know, but you can split hairs of what legitimate and overwhelming and and rational mean, but this clearly was a move to punish them. I I think it it came on the heels of, as I said, Google, Facebook, and I believe it was uh, Twitter. Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, going on Capitol Hill and basically doing, a, you know, kind of a washing of hands, uh, a punches pilot, if you will, and saying, look, you know, whatever you want us to do, uh, we'll do. But the, the one thing that I would have wanted them to do was get up and admit that they're media outlets now, and they need to act like media outlets and act more responsibly and not say, look, we're just tech companies. We have this digital algorithm, and that's what that's what leads us around by the nose, and we can't be expected to do anything. Which is interesting because when they got up there, they said, well, we can do stuff. We can pinpoint RT and censor them, which is interesting also because it was these bots, these these apps, and these news sites that really were spurious and not, didn't really exist, that if you're a believer in fake news, they were the ones who were purveying it, not right. RT. Right. And, you know, so they did nothing to cut out these bots, these apps that were, that were regenerating these messages, or to investigate and vet these news sites that were they're generating messages. They went after a legitimate news organization. You know, yeah. and that is how, you know, you don't see them do it with the BBC or even China uh, Global National TV or Nippon News, you know, any international, any, any nation's news presence in the United States.
2: Well, that's that's why I would have to disagree somewhat with the statement you made earlier about it not being ideological, because when you look at that move against RT, I, that was definitely ideological, you know? And And then when I look at the coverage of some of these, switching back to the corporate news outlets right now, when I look at the coverage of Russia, of Venezuela, Libya, and again, Israel, which we mentioned earlier... It's totally ideological. And it's to the point where, I mean, even even some of the other foreign news uh, outlets that they prefer, because they also parrot the same line, like like uh, France 28 or the French Channel. Every time they get a chance, they disparage Venezuela and they're taking their news from someone in the, the right wing opposition there. And that's all they report on. And that's how they get their news. So I see the coverage there as being very biased and very much in lockstep with, I don't know, if you call it the deep state, if it's not with Trump, (laughs) it's definitely with the military-industrial complex and how they view the world and what they consider to be American interests.
0: Right. I understand. I understand. I understand.
2: So it all feels so Orwellian to me. I mean, it's to the point where as someone like me who, who is on the left, uh, there are very few places that uh, in terms of t- TV where you can really get information that you know is correct. And uh, every night, there's a spewing of I consider just naked propaganda, <laughs> and it's sad because you know, as a veteran journalist, I want to believe. I mean, I still believe in the power of the press, and I believe in it being the fourth estate for real, not a, an extension of power, and not an extension of
0: corporate power. Yeah, it, it's it's um it's a sad time for that, and and you're going to see. I think if you're on the left and you want to believe in, you know, legacy media, and you want to believe in some of the new media outlets there. I mean, if you're going to do that, you, you know, it's almost like you're going to have to hold your nose at certain things that they do. I mean, there are certain things that that the Washington Post and the New York Times are doing that are absolutely despicable. But they're also... Give me
2: an example of what you...
0: There is, there's coverage of, of, um, of Venezuela and, say... Um, what what went on in Libya, etc., certain aspects of what of, of what they're doing with Russia and the and the Mueller investigation, you know, some some of it is critical, some of it is is not, some of it is, is purely informative. I mean, there are certain things that they're doing that you know that you know you would look at and go, okay, well, what what is their angle here? But then there are others where they are exposing some glaring problems in say the tax plan,
3: right. or
0: you know, without them, we would not have come to see. Uh, Roy Moore uh, in his true light, and there would have been another extremist in the United States Senate, and other kinds of stories. So, I mean, it's it's a terrible time, because, you know, you you almost have to hold your nose at some things in order to see others. And there aren't outlets out there. I mean, there are. They are out there. But as you said, I mean, the doors are closing on, say, democracy now, Uh, and outlets like that. Not Mm -hmm. shutting all the way, but it's just squeezing. And it's hard to search for those and dig for those sources that you can trust. You know, that, and again, you're right, that is an ongoing problem. And, you know, I don't see it being solved anytime soon because we are in this time of ferment. And we are in this time of, 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 of layers of irony upon layers of irony. Well, you know, I mean, do I support the New York Times if they're going to go after Trump because I hate Trump because Trump's crazy, or do, I, or do I not trust them either? But if I don't trust them either, who else? Who, who are I gonna, am I going to get on my side to fight? You know, it's getting to be that crazy. And I, I really yearn for um, a time where, it, where, where that did not happen, but you know we're going to go through a lot more ferment. Things are going to get a lot worse before they get better.
2: You know, um, just because I'll I need to wrap up. You know, one of the kind of kind of referring back to my original ideas about corporate control and and the kinds of things that we kind of talk about on this segment is the idea that when you look at RT, when you look at BBC and and other outlets that are. Uh, state, They say state funded or state backed. And of course, it's said in a real pejorative way that this is a really negative thing. But when you really look at the, the alternative model that we've been discussing, uh, corporate control of the media organization, it's certainly not any better. And we can see from this year, even last year during the campaign, that having a news organization solely ruled by corporate profit leads us really down the wrong road.
0: road oh, very, very much so. I mean, and more so since the 1980s, where you had the first phases of corporate media consolidation. Because, you know, I mean, our three legacy networks have always been owned by somebody else, whether it's GE or whatever, you know. But when you had these these companies basically get, you know, become part of even larger entities, larger entities where all the investors in them were hedge funds or are hedge funds and other kinds of huge institutional investors that don't have any care for the average person at all, then it gets even worse. Now, I'm not saying that there was some golden age just because GE, you know, owned NBC or you saw, you know, Shell Oil or Pillsbury Doughboy supporting CBS or whatever, that that was some golden age. What I am saying is that the corporate control back then was a tiny bit more attenuated and a, a little bit more diffused. So we didn't see these massive accumulations of wealth and consolidation until the Reagan administration and, you know, enabled all of that, which was basically part of their plan anyway. So the, in, in a sense, it's gotten worse. I'm not trying to say that there was a golden age where corporate control of the media was not a big problem back with Walter Cronkite or Ed Sullivan, you know, was around. I'm not saying that, but it was diffused enough and it was attenuated enough that when you did have some brave souls and you did have some people trying to strike out and do some interesting things, they were able to do it. I mean, I'll give you the perfect example. It would probably be CNN. when it was under control of... Ted Turner, who was not, you know, who was not the nicest guy in the world, and you know, a, a you know, a capitalist kind of robber baron on his own. But when you look at the professionalism and the type of stories that they did, and the international presence that they they had compared to now, I would have to go as far and say that was a golden age, you know, because you know when you're comparing stuff that's truly crappy now as opposed to something that was somewhat crappy back then. Somewhat (laughs) crappy tends to look like a golden age. You know what I'm saying? And that's why I use, like, say, CNN when it was founded by Ted Turner and under Ted Turner's control as probably their golden age because there was more of a semblance of professionalism, of going after important stories, of reporting these stories out in a neutral way but in a way that, that showed when there was bad stuff going on, this was bad stuff that had people that worked there that knew what they were doing and that had an international presence where you could go to who was being hurt by, say, uh, apartheid policies in in the Gaza Strip or the West Bank, and you could go to certain people because you had the people on the ground there as opposed to now. There was, you know, I would have to call it by default a a better time, Um, Mm -hmm. even though it wasn't great. It was still corporate control. At least there was some. There were other things going on that militated against that. We don't have that anymore. It's all just a circus now.
2: You know, and you have to include. Unfortunately, you have to include a lot of public broadcasting in that. Um, we joke on this show a lot. Of them, we call it uh, National Petroleum Radio <laughs> because it's uh, it's definitely uh, very much skewed toward so called American interests.
0: But, you know they would say that. You look, we don't have any choice because the people who control the faucets of support don't want to turn them on all the way to do what we really want to do, so we've got to look at other sources of support. I'm not saying that's a good excuse. I'm just saying that's what they'll say. And the sad thing is is that in a practical sense, they're right. The problem is is that they're not honest about how that affects You and I and the people that that come to depend on, say, them as an alternative source of information. And again, I mean, it's almost like, who's the lesser of many evils? (laughs)
2: Okay, well, on that note, I'm going to have to wind up our talk today. Uh, I've been speaking with author and educator Christopher Chambers, professor of media studies at Georgetown University and a frequent commentator on mass communications and culture. Thank you for joining me today, Professor.
0: It was a pleasure.
2: And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank Professor Christopher Chambers of Georgetown University and Professor Gerald Horn of the University of Houston. Thanks to Chantel James for her reporting. The music we played this hour included Jellies the Beaner by Robert Glasper, Checkpoint by Jaziri X, and Only So Much Oil in the Ground by Tower of Power. Our theme song is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at OnTheGroundShow Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. I'll be signing books at the Busy Bee Holiday Gift and Art Show, December 22nd and 23rd at 1510 9th Street, Northwest in Washington, D.C. Please tune in next week for our end of year special and keep raising your voice. Peace.